So my Bible is opening up to 1 Samuel 25, where we're continuing our study this morning of the incident between David and Nabal. Some years ago, I think it was about 12 years ago, a new counseling book came out um, called Oops, I Forgot My Wife. A very clever title, and it was a very clever book. It was a story, the, the uh, subtitle is A Story of Commitment as Marriage and Self-Centeredness Collide. You can see the wife is in the rearview mirror as the husband has <laughs> driven off without her. And the focus is on a couple where the husband is a very self-focused, actually an unsaved man, and the wife has reached out to a pastor for help. And the pastor began counseling this man, but uh, circumstances required that they do a lot of their counseling by email. So the book is a compilation of fictitious emails between the pastor and this man as he's trying to help him see how he needs to stop forgetting his wife. And the pastor guides him into a gospel-shaped understanding of life and marriage. Well, today we're coming back to a story where there's a man who has more than forgotten his wife. He has been an abuser and self-focused man more than you can imagine. His name, we're told in 1 Samuel 25, is Nabal. And he has a large flock in this region, the southern region of Israel, near the town of Carmel, near the in the wilderness of Ma'on. He has a massive flock. And David had occasion some months before for his troop to pass through there. And instead of camping separately, they did them a favor. They provided security for the shepherds as they were in the field. And this sort of thing was not all that uh, unordinary. But uh, now the time for sheep shearing has come, and David sends a delegation to get some remuneration as would be expected, and Nabal instead flies into a rage and disgraces them, and David flies into a rage. What we're going to be reading this morning in the heart of this chapter, there are going to be a lot of messages back and forth, and there's going to be some counseling in these messages. Ironically, it's not David who's going to be the shepherd of souls. He's going to need shepherding. It's going to be Abigail who will give the wisest counsel Abigail is going to be like what Proverbs calls woman wisdom, who is literally going to meet David in the streets and counsel him about the sin that he had set his heart on doing. The story of David and Nabal teaches us the wisdom of waiting as we pursue God's kingdom plan. This 25th chapter is surrounded by two other chapters where David spares someone's life. He spares Saul's life in chapter 24. He's going to spare Saul's life again in chapter 26. And here in chapter 25, he's set out to kill Nabal. And it's a foolish thing. It's a selfish, sinful attitude of his heart. But he responds to counsel to wait and to leave this bit of vengeance in God's hands. David, at first, is a fool, but he responds to wisdom. Let me remind you briefly of what we saw last week as the great stage was set in the first three verses. Samuel's national funeral occurred in verse 1, and so the whole feel of the time has changed. And then it shifts to verses 2 and 3 to talk about Nabal's family business. He was a very, very wealthy man, 3,000 sheep and thousands of goats. This is a very large agribusiness for that day. And we're also told something about his character, that he's selfish and churlish. Ironically, his wife is very intelligent, well-spoken, very gracious. It's a strange match. 
And after that setup, there is then the long story told. It's verses 4 to 44. This is a, a long story in the books of Samuel. Occasionally, the author intentionally slows down the pace of telling the stories of David. And when he does that, he wants us to slow down and think about what's happening. So that's why we took a message of introduction last week. We'll, Lord willing, cover the heart of the story today. Next Sunday night, I'm going to finish the remainder of this chapter. Um, this long story begins with David seeking uh, his payment plan. He, he's explained uh, through his messengers to Nabal why, you know, it would be good for them to receive some of the proceeds now from sheep shearing time. And, but Nabal gives just the response so despicably. His messenger, David's messengers are forced to wait this extra long time. It's very awkward. And then Nabal gives them this awful sort of welcome where he tells them, who's David? Who is this guy? Why should I do anything for him? And he sends them away disgraced. And David, unfortunately, in a low moment of his spiritual life in verses 12 and 13, is enraged and sets out on a warpath to take out Nabal and all of his servants. And that brings us to the text today in verses 14 to 35. This long section where Abigail gives some wise intervention. Now, the, this portion breaks up into uh, five parts or so, and so here's a preview of what we'll see this morning. We'll see how Abigail is informed of the crisis, how she makes a, a forms a solution for peace, we see David still raging at his enemy and Abigail engaging with the king and it ends with David repenting of his folly as he sees the value of waiting on God and not leaning on his own understanding and taking things into his own hands. Well, because this is so long, we're going to read it piece by piece as we go through. In verses 14 to 17, we see Abigail informed of the crisis. Look with me there at verse 14. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Behold, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he scorned them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we were not insulted, nor did we miss anything as long as we went about with them while we were in the fields. They were a wall to us, both by day and by, by night and by day, all the time we were with them tending the sheep. Now, therefore, know and consider what you should do, for evil is plotted against our master and against all his household, and he is such a worthless man that no man can speak to him. The servants of Nabal come to his wife because, of course, he won't listen to anyone, and they say, you've got to think of something to do. David's men, after they were shamed, were clearly angry. And when they get the word of David, he's even angrier about the unfair, rude treatment that they had received. Nabal's servants could read the situation, just interacting with David's men. These are all mighty men of war. You know, these ten young men that David sent, these are also soldiers. And you can tell in their disposition that they're not pleased with this. And David, unfortunately, these 600 men around David, they're, they're, not all these are pious men. Even back in the cave in the previous chapter, some of David's men were telling him, this is the chance to kill him. And he had to counsel them not to do it. In this instance, it seems like uh, David needs counseling. Abigail knew who David was. It's 
you know, they don't labor in telling her he's the son of Jesse and so forth. I'm sure his reputation had preceded him. She knows his reputation as a righteous man, but she also knows this is a warrior. This is a man who took down a giant with one stone. In verse 14, we're told that David's men had come to greet their master. Literally, the Hebrew text is they, they came to bless our master. And if you go back earlier in the chapter when, when they arrived, look, I mean, look what they say. Verse 6, David gave them the instructions. Thus you shall say, have a long life. Peace be to you. Peace be to your house. And peace be to all that you have. Their seeking financial uh, remuneration was not any sort of a shakedown. They came to bring a blessing. But he's, they were met instead with scorn, insults. That term for scorn sometimes refers to words shouted out and shrieks and screams. And the servants of Nabal rehearsed to uh, Abigail, I mean, the very kind of things that David's men had said. Look, when we were out there in the field, we decided to camp together. They didn't object. We didn't take advantage of them. We didn't intimidate them. We didn't insult them. In fact, it was a pretty good arrangement. In fact, you didn't lose one sheep while we were out there. Pretty good deal. Well, the, the, the expectation, the cultural expectation would be, even though he hadn't asked for this assistance, the, the shepherds did not object. They accepted the assistance. And the cultural expectation is they should be paid back. David knew what it meant to protect flocks. And here he's protecting not only sheep, but even shepherds. In verse 17, the soldier, the uh, servants of Nabal report that as far as they can see disaster is on the way they use this word evil in verse 17 evil is plotted against our master and yes it was it was it was a not just a calamitous evil it would be there was death and destruction coming their way with 400 men but David was also on the verge of a moral evil he was self-righteous in this moment and yet the servants could hardly blame David because they knew the, the real culprit behind all of this was their master. He is such a worthless man, they say. The, the Hebrew text is literally, he is a son of worthlessness. It's the same expression used to describe the sons of the priest Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, back in chapter 1 and chapter 2, verse 12. The old King James had sons of Belial, worthless fellows. Nabal called David son of Jesse, and he could be called the son of worthlessness. No talking to him. He won't listen. Everybody in the story knows Nabal is a wicked man. The narrator, the servants, his wife even says it later on. Isn't it a terrible thing? Is it not a terrible thing to have such an awful visual testimony? Every, every, every child of God, and I'm, I'm not saying Nabal is a child of God, but he was part of the covenant people of Israel, but every one of ch God's children has both a verbal testimony, what they say about who they are, and, and we also have a visual testimony. That is what people observe about us. Isn't it terrible when your visual testimony is so terrible that everyone sees how crooked and, de and deceptive you are and you're oblivious to it? The observations of others can be so useful. They can become like a mirror to us if we look at it in the light of God's Word. But this man, 
so self-focused, so self-insulated, won't look, won't listen. And Abigail knows this, which is why, in verses 18 to 20, she forms a solution for peace. Let's read these verses. Verse 18, Then Abigail hurried and took 200 loaves of bread and two jugs of wine and five sheep already prepared and five measures of roasted grain, a hundred clusters of raisins, two hundred cakes of figs, and loaded them on donkeys. She said to her young men, Go on before me. Behold, I'm coming after you. But she did not tell her husband the ball. It came about as she was riding on her donkey and coming down by the hidden part of the mountain that, behold, David and his men were coming down toward her. So she met them. David had been hoping for repayment, and the things that Abigail is bringing are actually the sorts of things he would have expected to have received. All of them, did you notice, are digestibles. Some of them are ready to be eaten right away. Uh, there is the, there's the, the wine, there's the bread, which, of course, has to be eaten soon. Five sheep have been butchered and cooked. 200 loaves of bread, if David has 400 soldiers, that's half a loaf of bread for each man. Two jugs of wine, can't say how big these were necessarily, it's hard to quantify it, but it would certainly be enough to share amongst everyone. Five fully butchered and cooked sheep, and then there's some preserved foods they bring. Five measures of roasted grains, that's about a bushel of roasted grains, which would have a nice, uh, perhaps smoky flavor to them, could last for a long time. A hundred clusters of raisins, some have translated this, a hundred cakes of raisins. So this is sort of a pastry sort of thing. And there would be a quarter of each cake, and they could be the size of about a plate. And 200 fig cakes, half a cake for each man. Hard-pressed fig cakes, quite tasty. They were considered one of the, the choice uh, items. They were prized for taste and nutrition and for shelf life. Later on in the book of Samuel, there's a, a man who comes from the battle where, where Saul had been killed, an Egyptian, and he's faint. He's run out of energy. They feed him a fig cake, and he revives. Out in the desert, this is a wonderful thing to have. So here's David and his party of 400. This was not an enormous amount, but it would feed that army at least one good meal. Abigail actually goes above and beyond that because David hadn't asked for things like pastries. In verse 19, she sends them, places them on donkeys. It's quite a load. And they're going on ahead of her. She is visibly behind. She sets out with talking with Nabal, who no doubt would not have approved of this expenditure. In a way, Abigail is acting like Jacob did back in the days with his brother Esau. Remember that story? Jacob wasn't sure how Esau was going to respond when he came home, so he sent gifts on ahead. I think Abigail knew that story, certainly knew that custom. In a way, Abigail is like Jonathan. Jonathan, who had to go behind his father's back to do the right thing. And so also, Abigail does the same. In verse 20, it pivots us into the heart of the story where she first meets David. She's climbing along through the mountainous territory, and they come into a hidden part of the mountain, the text says, which means a ravine. And there in that ravine, her camel, her donkey train meets up with the army of David. Uh, and there's no getting out of there. 
The meeting must take place there. Now, verses 21 and 22 back up a bit to tell us what David had been thinking all the while that Abigail had been preparing these things. David is still raging at his enemy. Verse 21, now David had said, Surely in vain I have guarded all that this man has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. He is ticked off, and he's muttering about it to everybody. He's repeating it. He's meditating on the offense. Uh, and and can, I, can I say this? When we continually rehearse the wrongs that we've suffered, we tend to inflate these things way out of proportion. Now, I'm not saying don't deal with offenses and never confront someone who has offended you. I'm not saying that. But the way David is going about this is just so totally out of proportion. It's a wrong kind of meditation. When we're met with obstacles, oppositions, uh, when we're offended, we need to make sure that we're not stewing on these things. Instead, we are meditating on God and his grace and his promises. You see David doing that at his best in the Psalms. But not every moment of David's life was something out of the Psalter. We're, seeing, we're going to see David at one of his lowest points. In for, actually, in the whole book of 1 Samuel, this is, I think, his lowest point spiritually. Look at the contempt that David has for Nabal. He doesn't even use his name. He calls him this man. Can't even utter his name. David had done him a solid. And he, re he re rehearses the whole story again. How, how many times are we going to read about how, how this, this bad deal went down? There wasn't anything illegitimate about the job. It, Nabal's men didn't protest. David's men didn't molest. It should have been all copacetic. It's really ironic about David complaining about receiving evil when he had given good, and now he's going to do evil because he should have learned this from the previous chapter. Back in chapter 24, verse 17, look at that with me. Saul said to David, Saul said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have dealt well with me while I have dealt wickedly with you. And David is praised. Uh, for some reason, David has it in his head that this situation is an exception to what he had just learned in the previous chapter. You know, this is, this is important for us. Spiritually mature people can be sometimes surprisingly inconsistent. Now, now, one of the goals of maturity is that we grow in consistency. But don't be surprised, even if you as a seasoned believer have periods where, you know, your sin surprises you. The flesh is a sneaky thing. In the previous chapter, David didn't fight for his honor. But this time he has launched himself into a self-righteous rage. I want to say, I want to be cautious how I say this, but I find that on social media now there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of videos playing about um, injustices taking place. And on one side we need to have accountability for public officials that they not exceed their authority, that they not abuse the others. On the other side... One downside of all of the video footage that's coming out is there's this now constant rehearsing of wrongs, and it intends to enrage people. You know, if you spend your day watching videos of policemen going too far, that's going to affect the way you think about the world. 
it can be the wrong kind of meditation. Now, come with me to verse 22, and I want to give a little viewer discretionary warning here about, well, I'm not going to show you anything, but some things David says are, um, well, you'll see. Verse 22, may God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by the morning I leave as much as one male of any who belong to him. Now, this is the language of an oath. He is pronouncing a curse on his enemies. May God do so and more also. This is a common introduction to a curse. And uh, may he do so, literally, may he do thus. And it's thought that when this sort of statement was made, that the person might pantomime something like, may God kill and more. If I don't accomplish what I set out, I'm going to do. Now, usually the language in a curse like this would be, may God damn me if I don't do X, Y, Z. That's usually the way these curses were pronounced. And what that means is I am determined. I'm going to, I've put myself under oath, and may God judge me if I don't do it. And that kind of thing can be good. It can be a holy thing. This is not a holy mood in which David is, though. In this case, David changes the language of the oath, and instead he, he turns it on his enemies, as if to say, uh, if I don't do what I said I'm going to do to them, may God kill them all. If I don't kill them, then may God do it himself. And in the meantime, I will do everything I can to fulfill God's curse on them. Whew. He is uh, not quite leaving vengeance in God's hands. He is on the edge of profanity, perhaps over. This is one of the things, by the way, that the commandment that says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The primary kind of application that the Old Testament gives for that, the number one is, don't use God's name when you make promises in which you're lying. Don't say, God is my witness, I didn't do X, Y, Z when you did. That's the number one thing the law goes after. Number two is making hasty oaths, invoking God to come damn and judge you or other people when it's really sort of a frivolous kind of thing. David is, even though his oath is an altered one, it's not the typical way, it's still spoken out of rage, out of carnality. It is so foolish to speak in empty ways about judgment. I'm going to take a little parenthesis here and talk about things that are common in contemporary speech. A, a lot of the profanity that gets used today is what we call minced oaths or minced curses. And by minced, I mean chopped up. The full language of a curse is, may God damn me to hell if I don't do X, Y, Z. Or may God damn you to hell if you don't stop doing whatever. That is the language of a curse. Now that is, those words are not necessarily wrong. There is a, the scripture uses words like that on occasion, but they are holy and sacred things. They are to be used very uh, sparingly. So the, the, the sad thing is, is that it's become popular, in, and it's been this way for centuries, where people use that kind of language when they're upset about their dinner being burned, or they're mad at their boss, 
or their neighbor or their spouse. And usually we don't use the full sentence. It's usually little pieces, minces, minced pieces. God damn such and such. To hell with this or that or that person. This is the language of curse. That's why we call it cursing. And we really ought to weed this stuff out of our speech. David's curse is not as bad. Uh, he's altered it from some, but it's still not good. Now, there's worse things he's doing, mind you. Um, one other thing he says that's not bad, before I get to the worst thing, is he's kind of crude here. And here's where the viewer discretion is advised. Uh, if you have a King James Bible, it reads a little bit differently at the end of verse 22. Uh, it reads, instead of uh, saying, uh, if I leave as much as one male of any who belong to him, here's what the King James says, which is a very literal translation of the Hebrew text. If I leave anyone that pisseth against the wall. Now that means men, males, but it's not the typical way of talking about men. It's a phrase that is used uh, six times in the Old Testament, two of them in this chapter. And the other four times also are when someone is enraged and about to go kill people. It's a demeaning, degrading way of speaking to people. Let me give you a modern equivalent. It's, it's kind of, this kind of talk, it's, it's crude, it's also clever. And a modern equivalent might be, by the morning I'm going to kill every stinking thing that uses a urinal. That's the idea. He has become crude, just like Nabal. Now, I don't want us to get too hung up on the words that he uses. They're not good. They're not full of grace and truth. But they are an indicator that something's not right. And what's really, really wrong, the bigger issue, the greater sin, is what he's threatening to do to people. Not only to kill Nabal, but all of the males of the household, all of the servants, all of his children. It's, he is preparing for a massacre. Chapters earlier, we were aghast when Saul ordered the slaughter of the priests at the city of Nob. What's David about to do? He's on the warpath against another village. There are plenty of innocent people in there. Since David is out to kill all of the men, I guess it's a good thing that he is greeted by a woman. So we come now to verses 23 to 31 as Abigail is engaging with the king. You will see a big contrast between her gracious moves and his vicious mood. Her humble approach is seen in verses 23 and following. Verse 23, when Abigail saw David, she hurried and dismounted from her donkey, fell on her face before David, and bowed herself to the ground. Very humble, the same way David had done to Saul in the previous chapter, fell down on the ground in front of that evil king. So Abigail does now before David. And this verse carefully replays her actions for us. Quickly dismounts, falls prostrate on the ground, literally fell on her face before David's anger. You could see it in his face. 
She is treating him like the king he would become. Every move she makes, she's careful, knowing he's full of wrath, and her speech matches her actions. And her speech is going to begin in verse 24, but before we read that, I want to note a few interesting things about the speech that begins. This is one of the most interesting and developed dialogues between a man and a woman in the Bible. This is also the longest speech in this long chapter, the speech of Abigail. It is, in fact, the longest speech of any woman in the Old Testament. 153 Hebrew words and more English words. She is almost like woman wisdom come in the flesh as she literally calls to David into the, in the street to listen to her wisdom. Now look with me in verse 24. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the blame. And please, let your maidservant speak to you and listen to the words of your maidservant. Please, do not let my Lord pay attention to this worthless man, Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men, my Lord, whom you sent. She is so humble. She calls him my Lord from this verse on through verse 31. She calls him that 14 times. Repeatedly calls herself your maidservant. And repeatedly asks for the blame to fall on her. Now the first time she says that, it might have meant, please forgive me for interrupting you, for stopping you. Uh, but there's clearly more to it. She is wanting David to interact with her instead of her husband. He would have a hard time justifying killing her, especially when she explained she had no knowledge of what had happened before. And she even talks about her husband's character. This is a painful thing for her to have to do. But uh, I shared with you last week that it, it's not likely. That, no, okay. The Hebrew word for one of the Hebrew words for fool is nabal. But there's other words, not all, too. It's not likely that when his parents named him that, they meant to say, fool. <laughs> there are, uh, and it's debated as to what it meant. Uh, the theory I like is that actually the name meant something like noble, noble one. Uh, but, you know, the more he grows up, and it, there's a joke on, on his name because he acts like the other kind of Nabal, a fool. And she plays right along with that inside joke. Folly is with them, Nebelah is with them, and Nabal is his name. Maybe David would wonder why he could trust her, so she explains she's different from him, and she's not been involved in the kinds of things that he's been doing. And look at now, in verse 26, she utters this genuine prayer for him, the future king. Verse 26, Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has restrained you from shedding blood and from avenging yourself by your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek evil against my Lord be as Nabal. I think the word here, her wording suggests she reads a change in his complexion. He's softening. He's responsive to godly wisdom even though it's coming from a very unexpected source. And she utters this prayer of blessing on him that as David turns away from vengeance, that it should be left in God's 
hands. Prays for God to execute the judgment. And she understands that her husband is a man who lives under a curse, not just from David, but in a larger sense, under the judgment of God. And anyone like him would fall under this curse too as they, if they were to oppose the Lord's anointed one. What Abigail says here echoes what would be written by Solomon much later in Proverbs 20, verse 22, where Solomon says, Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord, and He will deliver you. So there's a genuine prayer that's aiming, bending David's thoughts back in the right direction. There's the gracious presentation of the gift in verse 27. Now let this gift which your maidservant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who accompany my Lord. Let this blessing uh, that I brought to you, these wonderful foods that had probably been prepared for the great celebration of the sheep shearing time, which I mentioned last week was a time of tremendous festivity a couple times a year. And instead of cursing, here is a blessing that's given. And then, in the last few verses of her speech, Abigail utters a profound prophecy. Verse 28, Please forgive the transgression of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord and evil will not be found in you all your days. Again, she brings up the issue of forgiveness, I, at the very minimum as a matter of politeness. And her apology paves the way for a prophecy as she speaks about David having an enduring house. Now, in a way, what Abigail is doing is foreshadowing what will be said about David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Would you flip to that passage briefly with me? 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is a spot where the prophet Nathan comes before David, who is at this point on his throne, has been reigning for seven years, and he announces to him what theologians have called the Davidic covenant. The word of God through Nathan said to David, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. There it is from a prophet. And years before Nathan sealed those promises of God with a covenant, they were uttered here by Abigail. You know, the Jewish rabbis of the Middle Ages regarded Abigail as one of seven Old Testament prophetesses. In fact, in the book of Samuel, there's one other woman who makes a prophecy. Remember back in chapter 1, chapter 2? Hannah, as she dedicates Samuel to the Lord, rejoices and talks about how God is going to raise up a victorious king. There are a number of key godly women who appear throughout the books of Samuel and have a major role to play. Now, she also counsels him a little bit in this prophetic talk. She says, because you're fighting the battles of the Lord, the wars of the Lord. And what's implied by that is, you going on this little revenge fest against Nabal is no war of the Lord. This is your own little battle. This is beneath you. 
we've got to be sure, you know, when we get hot and bothered about things, that we're being disturbed about the right things. There are a million things in the world to get upset about, a million things in your own life that can agitate you and push you the wrong way. We need to think about the, the lines of that hymn, um, Rise up, O men of God. Have done with lesser things. Give heart and soul and mind and strength to serve the King of Kings. Abigail convinces him that he might jeopardize his enjoyment of God's blessings in the kingdom plan if he goes on and does his own thing. Killing Nabal would be an evil. You know, what Nabal did was shameful and disgraceful and despicable, but according to the law, it was not worthy of execution. David was taking justice to an absurd level in this little military campaign, and it would have been contrary to the law. In verse 29, she continues in her prophecy, Should anyone rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, then the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will sling out as from a hollow, the hollow of a sling. Now in short, what that means is God is going to keep you close and he's going to throw your enemies out. The phrase in the middle of the verse is a little peculiar, isn't it? Uh, my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord. Bound in the bundle of the living. This is a rare Hebrew phrase. To my knowledge, it's the only time it shows up. One of the theories that I'm attracted to as to what this means is it refers to a fold in the garment. You know, let's, uh, let's take a look here at, uh, this is a man from Bangladesh wearing what's called a longi. That's uh, that bottom piece is one large piece of fabric and it's wrapped and it's knotted up. There are no, normally there are no pockets in something like that. But you know that people for a long time have had ways of making pockets. And so typically in a garment like that, as the waist is wrapped around, there would be little folds. And in those folds you would create little safe pockets for cherished things. There's a theory that says that in the ancient days of David that shepherds out in the field would in their little pocket, they would keep small stones to represent the number of sheep that they had. It's a way of keeping accounting, little pebbles. And when a sheep is lost to uh, prey or maybe it's slaughtered, uh, you take away stones. If you gain sheep either by sale or by birth, you add stones. And it's a little record of the living ones that you're watching. And you keep it close to you in the bundle of your garment. Dr. Barak, who was one of my uh, big influences in the study of Hebrew, before he taught in seminary, was a missionary in Bangladesh for 14 years. And he wrote this in a devotional some years ago. In Chittagong, Bangladesh, on the other side of the world from my boyhood home, I waited while an old man tugged at the knot in the waist of his lungi, a one-piece skirt-like garment for men. It reminded me of my mother's tying a few coins in the corner of my handkerchief when I was a small boy. The old man's gnarled fingers worked until the knot was loosened, and out came some small coins, a tiny box of wooden matches, and two rusty keys. These were his treasures. In ancient Palestine, the fold of a garment was used in the same fashion, he says. 
In the verse quoted above, when Abigail blessed David, she shared with him a tender picture of God's care. The old man on the streets of Chittagong helped me to understand what Abigail meant and what David understood. The Revised English Bible makes the picture explicit. The Lord your God will wrap your life up and put it with his own treasure. We are God's treasure, cared for and held close as though we are wrapped in the folds of God's own garment. That's beautiful. David has this prayed over him, prophesied over him by Abigail. And there's another image, too, that's not as touching. (laughs) It's at the end of the verse where she says, but the lives of your enemies he will sling out as from the hollow of a sling. This is, uh, these stones are going to a different kind of pocket, and they're getting chucked far away. The last time words sling and slung were used were in the story of Goliath, where one of the enemies of David fell with a thunderous thud. Nabal's death, by the way, which we'll look at next Sunday night, is mentioned in verse 37. Glance at that with me quickly. But in the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him so that he became as a stone. Back to verse 30. When the Lord does for my Lord, according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you, and appoints you ruler over Israel, this will not be cause, this will not cause grief or a troubled heart to my Lord, both by having shed blood without cause and by my Lord having avenged himself. When the Lord deals well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. All of that is a long way of saying, David, you will feel so much better with yourself if you let this go. If you go ahead with this, you will be eaten by grief for a long, long time. Verse 31, you know, that that not cause grief or a troubled heart, that you not, literally, that you not, that not become to you a tottering, that you not become a wreck with needless guilt. And David responds. We come to verses 32 to 35, where we see David's repenting from his folly. Verse 32, then David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. And blessed be your discernment, and blessed be you, who have kept me this day from bloodshed and from avenging myself by my own hand. Nevertheless, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from harming you, unless you had come quickly to me, surely there would not have been left of Nabal until morning light as much as one male. So David received from her hand what she had brought him and said to her, Go up to your house in peace. See, I have listened to you and granted your request. David invokes the name of the Lord God of Israel, remembering that he was the sovereign one, he was the righteous one, the ultimate judge, and that justice should be left in his hands. He repeats back to her much of the things she had said already, which is his way of saying, you are totally right, I've been totally wrong, 
I've been consumed by my anger, and he admits that he had made a foolish oath in pursuing his self-righteous path to vengeance. And so the story, which began with David's men speaking peace, now ends with David speaking peace. For a time, peace is restored. The story of David and the ball is teaching us the wisdom of waiting as we pursue God's kingdom plan. Next week, we'll see how waiting worked. Next Sunday night, we'll see God's surprise vindication as Nabal dies at the hands of God and not of David, and then the fallout that comes from that. Abigail is the heroine of this story. She had to do some outrageously bold things, sought to undo the evil of her husband, took responsibility for his actions, gave away part of the family prophets, acted as a prophet and a theologian. And as Michael Bergen has said, and acting as prophet and theologian, she saved the day for everyone. And she continues to teach us today the wisdom of waiting. No doubt Abigail had learned the value of patience through the things she had suffered in that unequally yoked marriage. Difficult things, hard things. But she had matured through it, and she teaches David to keep waiting and entrusting himself to the faithful creator. And there are so many different things that we are tempted to do, take things into our own hands when we need to just leave them in God's. Sometimes it's a judgment call, how we should act or when we should act. But there always needs to be this mindset that unless the Lord works, I'm not going to force things. But prayerfully and carefully we proceed and navigate the conflicts that we face so that we not get in the way of God's better plan. He has a kingdom plan that you and I are a part of, and we don't want to spoil our experience in it with our own selfish impatience. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, the one who suffered so much, the one who perfectly modeled for us waiting for the joy that was set before him, who endured the cross so he could get to that joy and now is seated at your right hand in fullness of joy and glory. May we learn the wisdom that Abigail was teaching. May we walk in the paths of David's son and know that your way is better. We thank you, Father, for the, the power of the gospel that enables us to be people of patience. It is not our natural bent. Our sinful selves want what we want and want it now. But through the gospel, by receiving Christ as Lord and Savior, you make us different. So, Lord, if there be any who need that transaction of soul, of coming to Christ and finding this new way of living, may this be a day of change. And for all of us who know him, continue to fashion us into the image of your Son, our perfect example. In his name we pray.